Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast, Season 3. I'm Rob Shear, the founder of Comfort Cases and your host. Together, we have made such a difference in the world. We've met with leaders and change makers in the foster care system. We've met with charities and philanthropists, celebrities, authors, and so much more. We'll continue to bring you guests who will share how together, as a community, we can bring about change. Welcome once again to Fostering Change. You know, it has been an unbelievable year. And yes, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and point it out before you guys start emailing me. I do have a Band-Aid on my eye. I'm perfectly fine. I didn't fall, you know, but it's there. So, yep, I'm going to call it out. But listen, I have been so excited about my next guest. You know, I absolutely love when people tell their story. I feel that telling our story actually strengthens our community. You know, I've heard people come up to me all the time and say, I don't have a story. And I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, every one of us has a story, by the way. Every one of us. Some stories impact us in ways like you would not believe. Other stories move us to do things that we never thought we would do. And my next guest, who I actually get to call him my friend, he actually has written a book, a book that I had, I've read, absolutely love it. Him and I have so much in common, and you all are getting ready to find out. Tony, welcome to Fostering Change. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Glad to be here. So, Tony, you know, your story is, and I want to dive right into it, okay, because as I was reading your book, there were things that I thought about as a young boy. And the fact that you are, you know, you had two moms, um, or I should say have two moms, and you went through such a hard time as a young boy with one of your mothers passing away. I really want to jump into that. And let me tell you the reason why. That happened to me when I was a young boy losing my mother to cancer and watching her, you know, go from this woman who, you know, no matter how bad it was in my house at the time, she was still my mom, you know, and here you are third grade, you know, gonna put it out there, black kid, white parents, you know, gay parents at, at, you know, same sex. And now you're dealing with one of your moms having cancer. We got to jump in. I got to know how you're feeling about that. Yeah. Those are all fantastic things to mention because there was a lot going on, right? I mean, that's a lot. You have two white parents and your two white parents are two women and you're a boy. Your two white parents who are women also happen to be gay. And one of your parents happens to be diagnosed with cancer. And like you said, Rob, it was very, very difficult. One of my mothers, Mary, was diagnosed in the spring of 1997 with colon cancer. And I didn't even know what colon cancer was at the time. I had heard of something called cancer. I was a child, but I didn't know what colon cancer was. So there was a lot of learning for me that went on with even learning what her sickness was, what her illness was. And then, like you said, it was seeing her go from this strong person. And Mary, my mom, she loved to go kayaking. She loved to go bike riding. She loved to go camping. She loved to play rugby. You know, she was very strong physically and mentally. And she had this 
thick bed of black Irish hair. And she ended up losing chunks of that, of that hair. She ended up losing chunks of herself during this journey. And so it was very difficult seeing her go through that process. And then after her long battle, we actually thought that she had come out of it because in 1999, she went into remission, meaning that it seemed like her cancer had gone away. And so she was able to go camping again. We went to Alaska twice, actually, as a family. And I went to Disney World with her. And she was the same Mary that I had always known prior to her sickness, prior to her being diagnosed with cancer. And then in December of 2000, her cancer came back. And this time it seemed much worse than before. It seemed like her, her symptoms, it seemed like the chemotherapy treatments were no longer working. And so I didn't want to think about it, but I began to think, and I was around 11 years old at this time, that she might not be with us for much longer. And I didn't want you to- No, I have to stop you there for a second, because there was a line in the book that I read that you said that you had to think about the fact that, and at the time she's like 33, 35, and, and you thought that you, she wasn't going to be there when you got married. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And I thought to myself, now I'm 32 years old now and I'm engaged right now. And Mary is not with me today, physically present on this earth because she ended up passing away in 2001. And in the book, I was writing that, well, she was very young. She was only 37. She was about to turn 38 when she died. And I was saying that, I, you know, I just hope God, please just allow her to at least live till I'm 35 years old, because that seemed like a, to me, a child, a normal age to, to lose a parent. And now that I'm in my early 30s, now I'm thinking to myself, well, 35 still seems young to lose a parent, right? But I was just hoping that that process would come to pass and that this was something that she would be able to recover from again. And she died in June of 2001. And so last year was the 20th anniversary of her death. And it's still, as you know, Rob, it's still very difficult. When you lose a parent, that's not something that just gets erased with time or gets necessarily healed with time. They say time heals wounds. Time doesn't heal the wound of losing a parent. What I do is I process. And part of that processing for me was to realize, to your point, that I was no longer this Black boy with two white moms. Now I was a Black boy with one white mom. And so that meant that when we went out, people still stared at our family, my family sometimes, but the stares were much different. Yeah, The stares were, were wondering, who is this older woman? Because Janet, my other mom, is actually 20 years older than Mary. So they're thinking that, Maybe she's a grandparent. Maybe she's a caretaker of me. Maybe she's my adoptive mom in some cases. But there's not that inclination that, one, this woman is, is a lesbian, as, as my mom calls herself. And two, a lot of times and most times that this person is my adoptive parent. It became easier for me, Rob, to blend in in the sense of not having to come out as a member of an LGBTQ-headed household. 
And that was something that I realized. And it also became a little bit easier for me to blend in as someone who came from the foster care system, experienced that, and also someone who was adopted from that system. Because now people's minds didn't initially jump to who is this person to you? And I didn't get as many questions as I had had when Mary and Janet were picking me up from school. And so this was something during my middle school years, during my high school years that I really began to notice. But I also began to notice myself feeling guilty for not feeling like I was embracing my family for all of who we were. I was around peers of mine who were using the, the F word, the other F word, and I hated it when they used it. But I didn't know, you know, should I say something right now? Because if I do, then maybe they'll ask me why I have a problem with them saying that. And then I'll have to talk about my family. And if they're saying that, well, are they comfortable with my family? I remember driving by a church, our church that we had gone to growing up, and the church had a sign on it and it said, we welcome all families. And it had a rainbow on the placard. And a friend of mine at the time who didn't know I was adopted yet, didn't know I had two moms yet, said that means that church is open to the gay people. And I just sat there in silence, Rob. I sat there in silence. And then when I got home, I just felt awful. I felt awful about not standing up for my family. I felt awful about not speaking up. And so as I got older and as I was moving to my later teen years, to my college years, I began to feel a bit more comfortable talking about my family. And then when I moved on to later in my college years, I began to write about my family, go figure. And it really led me to the point where I felt not only comfortable speaking about my family, but comfortable standing up for my family and other families like mine, because not only are we, as you wrote about in your book, just like other families, but we are unique in fantastic ways too. And so that was something- I, I, was I agree with you on that in so many ways. I agree with you on that in so many ways. And, you know, I understand, you know, having been a dad and having five kids and, you know, I've read my children's text messages where on Snapchat, where their friends have used the F word and my child has not said, don't say that. And, you know, I also have to realize the peer pressure that they're under. And, you know, my youngest son is 13 right now. And he's at that age where you were, where, you know, kids were saying things and you didn't want to say something. And we've noticed he's got that same, even though he's so strong and I know he loves his dads. He is at a point in his life, he's like, drop me off over here. And I don't, you know, you know, Tony, I have to tell you, I am so impressed with the fact that, you know, not only did you write this book about your two moms, the fact that you are willing to talk about being a black boy raised by white parents. You know, I said this so many times last time you and I spoke, you know, I'm a white privileged male. Um, it's very hard for me to understand what my boys, you know, at least my boys of color and my daughter who are going through. But what I do know is that I've educated myself, you know, and 
When my kids arrived 13 years ago, I didn't know any other gay people that had children. Did you know other families that were that looked like yours? <laughs> That's a fantastic question too, Rob. And short answer is yes and definitely no. Because the yes is yes, I did know other adoptive families. My friend Avi, my friend Allison, they were both adopted. And Avi is Jewish and had two moms like me. And Allison is black like me and had white parents. So they, they both had parts, right, of my story. But I didn't meet anyone with my exact story from that demographic standpoint. I didn't meet anyone who was a black person, a black boy who had two white moms. And so that was something that I kind of had to experience without having a support system around who truly understood what that experience was really like. And I think what happens a lot of times with adoptive households, interracial adoptive households, is people talk about the importance of surrounding kids with what we call racial mirrors, the importance of making sure that their kids see people in their communities, in their classrooms, in their after-school activities who look like them from a racialized standpoint, so they can see themselves reflected and then accepted and then affirmed, which is all extremely important. And I recommend doing that for parents too. But for interracial adoptees, what I also remind parents of is that just because a Black kid is around other Black kids doesn't mean that that Black interracial adoptee is going to feel authentic around other Black kids who were not adopted, one, who were, adopted, who were not adopted interracially, two, and in my case, who didn't have two white moms at home as well. So even in those instances where I was around Black kids like me, there were certain themes, there were certain things that were, were different about the way that their household did things and the way that my household did things. And some of those things were cultural and some of those things were just related strictly to knowledge around the racial socialization practices that were present in their homes, but not my household. And so that was something that I had to figure out growing up, but it was also something as I was coming into my own as you know a teenager and then in my twenties, something that I thought about and I thought to myself, you know what, even today, I feel very comfortable in who I am. I feel very comfortable saying that first and foremost, I'm a black person and a black man. But I also feel comfortable saying that I was raised in this bicultural household. You see here on the screen that my last name is Tony Hines. That's my adoptive family's last name, specifically Mary's last name. And so Mary sometimes, yes, she was Irish and sometimes she liked to talk about being Irish and being a proud Irish woman. And she liked to talk about what she liked to do, not only on St. Patrick's Day, but on other holidays that really tied her to that ancestry. And so I carry that name with me, but, and I'm proud of that. But at the same time, growing up, I grew up in a, I grew up in a predominantly white area. And you realize that you don't feel racially authentic with kids who grew up listening to different types of music than you did. And they mentioned music that you're not familiar with. And again, there's that silence there that happens. There's that, oh, I need to step back because I can't contribute to this conversation. 
I can contribute to what it was like growing up in a Southern Baptist household because I grew up in a Protestant household and going to church for two and a half, three hours and seeing people literally fall out at church and friends laughing about that. And I don't have that experience, right? right? I don't have some of those experiences. And so that reminds me of my difference again. First of all, I'm going to tell you to hear what you're saying, which is something that I have been wanting someone to say. You know, I hear so many people, they have podcasts, they do talks, and they talk about the fact of, you know, oh, you, you know, this whole interracial adoption and and it's damaging. And, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, the children who are color are, are, you know, at least are going and visiting and knowing, but you just said something that one of my kids said to me and, and I didn't know how to react. And now I do know how to go home and react when we have this conversation this evening at dinner, you said, just because I was around people that looked like me, okay, you know, didn't mean that I felt connected, because I still had where I was growing up at home. And I bet your mom's and again, I and I tell people this, and I know, here we go again, I'm going to get the hate email, I always do. When my husband and I decided to be parents. You know, we did it in the District of Columbia. Knowing that the District of Columbia has a high percentage of children of color, we ended up with four children of color. When it was time to go to school for our children, the very first thing that came out of my mind, very first thing, I wanted them in the number one school in the state of Maryland. That's all I thought about. I mean, sorry, I apologize. I didn't think, do I, uh, diversity, another gay parents, another black right. I just want, I was like, you know what? I grew up in foster care. I was never given an education. You know, I knew, you know, every one of the birth parents who grew up, who were, you know, I, I know them and none of them had an education. I wanted my kids to have an education. And now I look back hearing what you said, I should have checked out more than just the being in the number one school. Yeah, you know, and it's it's a conundrum for parents to make, because, for them to think about, because you do want the best for your kids. And the best for your kids includes usually having a great education. And if you have the means to do that, then do that. Provide the best education that you can for your kids. But education doesn't stop at the classroom. Education is about educating yourselves. You are their educator. So you need to be educated, those tools that they need to support themselves. And so one of those tools is yes, being in a great school, but another tool, as you know now, would be having a teacher who does look like them, having a curriculum that isn't a standard westernized curriculum where we're teaching, you know, about Huckleberry Finn and and Tom Sawyer only, but we're, and Jane Austen, but we're also looking at black and brown authors who are now canon, who kids are learning about. Because yes, I described that experience with interacting with black kids who sometimes I didn't feel like I fit in with. But at the same time, doesn't mean for me that I felt like I fit in with white people either. I felt kind of like I was in this space in between because when when I was around white people, I would hear microaggressions. I would hear, you must be good at basketball. I would hear, you're so articulate. When I was 11 and there were other kids just as articulate 
as me. You know, I would I would hear things like you heard as well around foster care, and it would be tied in with with race and these savior complexes about aren't you lucky? Aren't you glad? I Rob, I was just reading something last week actually. There was a judge who passed away, unfortunately. And I read the story, I was sent it by a friend of mine, a family friend. And the story was his obituary. And this his obituary was in the Washington Post. And he he was talking, they were referencing cases that he worked on. And the only case that they referenced that he worked on was, was my case. He is the one, the judge who decided in my case, that Mary and Janet, my two moms, were the right placement for me. And I just felt this wealth of emotion because I had never known his name. I had always just been told this is a judge in your case. And this was the only case that they referenced in his illustrious career. And I read part of his decision. And part of his decision was saying that when I went to live with Mary and Janet, my fits of rage were gone and that I was still an at-risk child, but basically things were looking up for me. And I didn't know how to take that exactly. I felt good that he given that decision, but then I remembered how old I was. That decision was made, that ruling was made when I was only five years old. And so I was thinking to myself, how many other five-year-olds are described as having fits of rage? And my friend, I was telling him about it, and he said, you know, Tony, you don't know that Maybe you were a rageful kid. Maybe you had, you know, fits of rage and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I mean, that's a fair point, man. But I haven't seen that in any other court documents that I've seen. And I've seen other psychological reports that were done on me from that time. Neither one of my moms ever described me as being a rageful child with, with fits of rage. And so I followed up with Janet, uh, one of my moms who's alive today. And I asked her the question. I said, mom, did I have, did I have, fits of rage when I was when I was a kid when I was younger and she said well not when you were with us and I, I said I know I know that but what about before and she said well you know apparently you had some you know some some out fit not fits but I guess you were having difficulties and I, and I said who who said this what what did they say and she said that well the judge just basically said that and I said well that's not really enough I don't know what went into describing me having those particular reactions to, to grief, to separation, to loss, because that's what was going on when I was having whatever was going on. And I and my mom said, you know, I think it was an inappropriate use of words by by the judge. And I said, I agree, because this is a four-year-old, Rob. This is a five-year-old. We know that they have difficulties. But describing a child that young as having fits of rage is setting them up to have a system also see them as having fits of rage. What if I went to my next placement, right? And they saw on a sheet of paper fits of rage. And so I'm thinking then about being a person who experienced the foster care system, being now an adoptee, being a man, but specifically being a black man. And I'm thinking about how even at that early age, I was kind of being groomed in a sense to be thought of as someone who was almost inherently violent or inherently angry, maybe. But you and know what? I, I think 
I, I think that that happens, you know, way too much. You know, listen, everybody, the book is The Son with Two Moms. We're going to take a quick break. Um, as you can tell, we have a lot to talk about. And, you know, Tony, again, there's something that you said. I want everybody to listen to this and think about this as we're taking this commercial break. But, Tony, you wrote, events don't make up lives. Moments do. Moments do. We'll be right back. This episode of Fostering Change is sponsored by Comfort Cases, a national nonprofit that inspires our communities to bring hope and dignity to our youth that are in foster care. For just $10 a month, you can support the Comfort Case mission and help us eliminate trash bags for kids who are entering foster care. For every $10 that you give, Comfort Cases will give a Comfort XL to a child entering the system. Be part of the change. Visit comfortcases.org. So anyone who has ever listened to our podcast or anyone who actually knows me, they know that I love a good conversation. I love a good conversation. But what I love the most about a good conversation is what you take away from it. Okay. You know, no matter whether my kids and I or my husband are sitting down and talking about what's happening in school, I always want to know what are they taking away? What can I take away from a great conversation? We have been having an amazing conversation with my friend, Tony. Tony, you actually, you know, besides being an adoptee, starting your life in the foster care system, which, you know, we know that as we were talking about, you know, right before we went to break, I mean, the, the, you know, as I read my children's case files, you know, which by the way, they did not share them to us until after we adopted our children as we were going through that, that last court hearing. And I read those case files. I do believe that there were many things that were written in those case files that was based on perception and about how they think that brown child is supposed to bend. And I kind of, you know, as I said to Reese, I said, I'm kind of glad we didn't know some of the things that we found out later, because I don't know how we would have, you know, dealt with it. We now don't know, deal with it as we do now, as just as parents. But one of the things that, that triggers me still to this day and is, you know, we wanted to be parents, okay? We wanted to be parents. We didn't have any role models when it came to that besides my husband's parents. I grew up in the system, but the thing that really crushed me and it crushes me to today is that when that judge signed that piece of paper and said, you are now officially, you know, the father of these four kids, it was like we never existed anymore. No, there was nobody who came to us and handed us a pamphlet and said, oh, by the way, you know, you got a daughter, she's going to be a get her period. You have three boys of color and, you know, don't, don't forget their hair is different. There's, and we educated ourselves about those particular things, but there was a lot that I feel that, that, that we they failed us and now you work at case you know you're the training specialist at the center for adoption supportive education 
besides having a, you're a PhD candidate, what are you doing to make sure that families like mine who are adopting today, and by the way, we, we, are, we are continuing to adopt. More and more gay people are adopting and more and more gay people are adopting through foster care. More and more people that are white are adopting children of color and vice versa. I have a friend of mine on Instagram. She's a woman of color and she's, she's fostering three white boys. So, you know, what, what are you doing at case and what can we do to try to educate each other more about this? A great question, Rob. And one of the things that I do at case is I help parents understand that I think a lot of times parents think that, well, things have changed since I grew up. People are more accepting, people are more open, interracial families, whatever, right? Well, I speak to teens as well who were black boys or black girls or Asian boys or girls who have white parents. They're saying some of the exact same things that I heard myself saying or feeling or thinking when I was their age and when I was older. So the issues, the challenges that interracial adoptive families are facing are not issues of the past. They're issues of the present. They're challenges of the present. And what are some of those challenges? Well, still a challenge is growing up in predominantly white communities. And why do I say white? Well, I say white because over 80% of interracial adoptive parents are white parents. When it comes to international adoptions, over 90% of international adoptions are white parents who are adopting internationally. And those parents are usually raising their children in predominantly white spaces where their children are hearing sometimes racist things said to them at school. But when they hear those, and people might say, well, Tony, that happens everywhere. Yes and no. However, the one of the biggest issues with hearing that racist thing, of course, it's terrible that they hear it, but it's afterwards not having a peer to turn to who's a peer of color to support them, to stand up for them to not have anyone at home, to not have a mentor to be able to talk to about that stuff, to not have someone available to talk to what it's like to do their hair or, or what it's like to, to listen, as I was referencing earlier, to music from their homelands, from their nations of origin, for instance. I teach and preach really that it's really important, one, for parents for that reason to move into diverse communities. And it's also really important that they understand that connections to other adoptees, to other kids who have experienced the foster care system is vital, is so important. Just because as I referenced earlier, you have someone who is black or brown who may live next door to you, if they're not adopted, they don't understand what it's like to be an adoptee. They don't understand as you understand, Rob, what it's like to be a kid who was in the foster care system. And so having peers who can support them in those ways is also really important. And I talk to parents as well about being advocates for policy change too. We need to be advocating for policy change in organizations like mine that are adoption related organizations, foster care related organizations, but also as parents, you can speak up too. You can say, and you can educate yourself on one example, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, 1996, an act passed that stipulated we're not going to discriminate when it comes to adoption, meaning that white parents, 
you're not going to be turned away because in DC, as you experienced, it was very, very difficult for a white parent in DC to adopt a child of color and specifically a black child. The unofficial policy when I was adopted was that we don't do adoptions across race in DC where I was adopted from. And so MEPA, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, legally made it harder to do that. However, what also happened with Multi-Ethnic Placement Act is that we told adoptive families that you can choose, you can have a preference for the kid that you adopt. Adoptive parents know what I'm talking about because they've gotten a paper that says, would you prefer in oh, some language? It's like adopt. going to McDonald's. I was shocked at that form where they, the questions they asked when it came to adopting. And I remember saying to Reese, I just want to be a dad. You know, I just wanted to be a dad. And you are right, you know, Tony, you know, even though that act was in place when my children arrived, we were flat out told. We were told by, you know, some of the highest people up at D.C. Child and Family Services, the chances of us adopting children of color being two white gay men at that was slim to none. So we just, you know, might as well sit back and just be foster parents. And for me, I wasn't going to have it. And I remember, you know, after two years of waiting for the birth parents to do something, just go to a class, show up for a visit. After two years, I said, you know what, can't do this anymore. You know, these kids don't deserve to sit on the sidelines waiting for, you know, adults to be adults and you know and I love the fact what case does and I love what you do listen everybody you know this is the son with two moms you can actually get this on Amazon um it is a good read it is a read I will have to tell you that there were times I had to set the book down um because it is a, it's emotional and especially when you have dealt with it on my side of the fence like you have dealt with it on your side of the fence Tony listen you and I could talk forever and we're gonna talk again and I just want to say thank you thank you for educating us you know during this short period of time you know I know that my listeners and our viewers I know they're gonna pick this book up and by the way my assistant was in my office and I keep my favorite books right here. And Tony, your book happened to be right here. Um, and so I'm going to tell you right now, this is the book to get. The Son with Two Moms. And by the way, you could be the daughter with two dads, okay? You can be the one person that has a mom and a dad. There's so much that you can take out of this. The line that I will not forget, events, events don't make up lives moment, moments do and it is the moments within your life tony thank you so much for being an amazing guest at fostering change listen everybody you can listen to us on all the podcast platforms maybe you have subscribed to our youtube channel and you can actually watch us and again if you have any questions please never hesitate to reach out to fostering change at comfortcases.org and until next week continue to be good humans. Take care. I want to say thank you to each and every one of you for listening or watching the latest episode of Fostering Change. All of us on our team hope that you've learned something new today and have been inspired to be a good human. 
Now, just a reminder that you can always find Fostering Change on your favorite channels on Google, Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and others including, of course, comfortcases.org. I want to give a big thank you to all of you for joining us each and every week. And a reminder that if you have a suggestion for a guest, or maybe you might have a question about today's podcast, or are interested in becoming a sponsor of Fostering Change, please don't hesitate to email me personally at fosteringchange@comfortcases.org. Now, that's it for now. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Take care.